This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Well, J&J's COVID-19 vaccine could protect millions more Americans from contracting the coronavirus. Their vaccine, uh, as we know, given emergency youth authorization by U.S. regulators, that happened over the weekend. Well, the company, Tim, we know, out in full force today, talking about the rollout. Uh, in fact, our, our team over on Bloomberg Television, David Weston, catching up with J&J CEO Alex Gorski about that rollout. Check it out. We've got a, a safe We've got an effective single-shot vaccine that can be refrigerated uh, using very standard uh, procedures, and that's going to be available right here in the United States to the tune of 100 million doses by June of this year. All right, and that was Alex Gorski, J&J's CEO. So let's get some thoughts on that latest COVID vaccine, uh, our daily check on the virus. Yeah, Michael Dowling is president and CEO of Northwell Health. He joins us on the phone from New Hyde Park, New York. Hey, Michael, great to have you back on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing very, very well. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. What are you Delighted seeing? To be on. What are you seeing across across Northwell Health right now when it comes to the virus, especially with regard to this J and J news? What do you make of it? Well, on the virus itself, the numbers are, are decreasing. I now today have about 900 COVID patients. About three weeks ago, I had 1,400. So the number is dropping, and the positivity in the region is dropping. So the signs are all good, and uh, the new J and J vaccine, of course, is a huge, huge step forward. And uh, we are expecting, uh, but I have been told that we may get some of the J&J vaccine later this week. Uh, the state is going to get a couple hundred thousands more uh, doses each week from now on. So that just increases the supply because the supply has been the biggest issue over the last um, number of weeks and months. Um, the infrastructure is there to do the vaccination. The supply has been the problem. And with J&J as a one-dose vaccine, it is just a... Uh, an unbelievable step forward. How do you, yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Please. How do you determine if you, let's say you have, because you've already been administering vaccine. Yeah. Uh, Michael, if, if, if you do have, let's say, Pfizer vaccine and Moderna vaccine and J&J &J vaccine, right. how do you determine who gets what vaccine? Well, there are criteria that are being developed, which we are getting about what the priorities are for, for the J&J for the &J vaccine. I think it's for people over age 65. I think is for the younger people would be a priority at the beginning. Anybody from, I believe, age 18 to 65. Uh, well, I, I haven't seen the definitive final recommendations yet from, CC, from the CDC, but uh, we'll, wait for that. we'll wait for that directive from both the state and the CDC. But whatever it is, it means more, more shots in people's arms, and right. that's the ultimate right okay. now. But there will be, it sounds like, um, specifications for each of the vaccines ultimately. Is that fair to say, Michael? Well, I think it'll become more generic over time. I mm. think at the beginning, I think there'll be more prioritization. My guess is that for people, you know, the older, older population might, might have the preference for the Pfizer and the Moderna and the younger population for, for the J&J. &J. But, uh, but I do think uh, people, there are so many people clamming for a vaccine that once you have the, 
once you have the supply for whatever vaccine, people will want to take it. Right, because I know. The J&J vaccine is still, is still 72% efficacy, which is phenomenal. It's great. Right, exactly. What's interesting, though, Michael, and listen, I don't want to be uh, like, you know, Tim and I joke, we're like, I'll take anyone <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah. um, but complicating matters is J&J is also testing a two-shot version of the vaccine. So it does suggest that it thinks adding a second shot could improve protection. And I think that's where the public gets a little nervous. You're a medical professional. You're working within this. How right. should we read something like that? Well, I would say if, for example, the one-dose vaccine gives you, uh, gives you the 70, 70% efficacy and uh, it protects against severe illness and the severity of cases and it gives you 86% efficacy in that regard, I think that's a win. What you really want is to protect people from getting really sick and to protect people from getting into the hospital. So if you have a vaccine, just like the flu vaccine, it uh, doesn't protect you universally uh, across the board, but it does prevent you from getting really seriously ill. So it's a win to have to be prevented from a severe illness and keeping you out of the hospital. And if any of the vaccines do that, um, then I think that's, again, a win-win for the public. I do wonder to what extent the, the general public is focused on that number, 72% versus 90 or 95% when it comes to mRNA. Go ahead. I honestly don't think that there's been enough. Some will that pay an awful lot of attention, but I think most people, from when, I, when I'm out there, they, they just want the vaccine. Well, can I just they tell you? Sure that, they want to make sure that they don't really get sick. Michael, a February survey found only 7% of people wanted a single-dose vaccine compared with 58% who said they prefer a two-dose series. This was um, a presentation Sunday to the Centers for Disease Control um, and, and some others. So... You know, we've learned so much about creating a vaccine and about efficacy, but at the same time, a little bit of knowledge can be dangerous. Yes, and you know, you know, recently, you know, what was it? Um, uh, AstraZeneca and even I think Pfizer basically indicating, if I'm correct, that they, they, you know that there is real protection even with a one dose, even though we're giving two doses. I can tell you, if you want to expand the vaccination to the public in general, just giving one dose. Uh, across the board it just makes life so much easier we can do so much more right and it would be a lot better having everybody having a 70 percent protection against illness instead of having a small number having 90 percent uh, so uh and well, i i just think that the more the faster we can do it, more people the better so when you look out at the next few months, at the next six months, at the rest of the year. How do you see our world reopening? What's the timeline that you're thinking about? I think uh, that it will be a slow process, uh, be incremental. I think we'll be in a pretty good situation uh, by October, November is my guess. Once we get everybody vaccinated, hopefully by July, August. You should see Tib's face. You should see Carol's face. <laughs> the yeah. two of us. Yeah. We're just like, um, wow. But but I think we got to be a little bit um, practical here because we're going to be different. Uh, the economy is going to come back in a different way. The use of technology and the changing nature of work that has evolved as a result of COVID is going to make everything different. People now realize that they don't have to be coming to the office every day to be effective and productive, that they can be working remotely. And that's going to affect every business, not just healthcare, but every single business. And I do think the economic implications of COVID, that businesses that are, will be less robust now, I want some businesses not coming back at all, that the economic implications of COVID, I think, will even be more difficult and more long-term than actually dealing with COVID itself. 
Wow. Uh, we had a big crisis for the past 12 months. By the way, the first COVID case that we received at Northwell was a year ago tomorrow. Wow. So, uh, yeah. And we've seen 160,000 COVID patients wow. uh, since that time. So I think it's going, be, it's going to be incremental. It'll be different. Every organization now, if you're the CEO of any organization, you've got to be sitting back and saying, how do I transform? How do I completely rethink my business given the new circumstance? And quite frankly, I also think, some of, I think that some of this would be good because I do believe that we will reconfigure our organizations in a better way going forward based upon the lessons of the last year. Um, so we have to be patient here. The economy will start to come back, and I think by the end of the year we will be, doing, we'll be in a pretty good place, I believe. Um, now, we, do, we can't get complacent at the moment because right. you've got these variants out there, and, you know, you could get a surprise. Uh, we're just hoping it doesn't happen, but you've got to be ready for it if it does occur. But we're going, to be, we're going to be different in the future. We're not going back to pre-COVID days the way it was. Hey, listen, I want to talk about your book, but I do want to ask you when you talk about variants, are you even a little bit concerned that these variants will create another big wave for us? I, no, I don't think so. Okay. I mean, it does mean, it could mean that, when, that because the, the transmission is easier, that more people could get COVID. But if the vaccine keeps you from getting severely ill, keeps you out of the hospital, that to me is a, a win. Right. So let's assume you get COVID and you feel bad for a week, but you're not hospitalized. Uh, that's a good outcome. And remember, none, no vaccine is ever foolproof, as I said earlier. Right. So I, I think that we deal with that as a circumstance of course. But I would not get overly worried about it, but I would be cautious. All right. We got to talk about your memoir. It's called After the Roof Caved In, An Immigrant's Journey from Ireland to America. And right. coming up on March 11th, you're going to be doing a live reading of it from the book review in Huntington, Long Island. I know the book review. It is an incredible yes. bookstore and they feature the best writers. That's going to be at 7 p.m. Uh, you're going to be uh, interviewed by, I believe, is it Neil O'Dowd? Uh, Neil and Neil O'Dowd, yeah. Neil O'Dowd, okay. Yeah. So tell it us about nice this book. It was in person, you know, it would be nice <laughs> to be in person. Yeah, I know, I know. That's so, the way the world is. Tell us about this book. Well, I, uh, you know, it's an immigrant story, and it basically is a story about uh, what, that everything is possible, uh, and this is the message I'm trying to convey to people, including as younger people and many employees here that irrespective of the circumstance that you grow up in, it should never limit your potential of what you would try to achieve. I grew up in severe poverty. I left home when I was young. I was 16 when I left home. I was the oldest. I lived in a home that um, actually the reason for the, na for the name of the book as the roof caved in was the, the roof of the house fell down on us twice. Mm. We had no running water, no bathrooms, no heat, no electricity, etc. And uh, it, was, it was a tough environment. But on the other hand, it was, you know, it motivates you to do better with your life. And so the book is the story. I, you know, I kept getting pressure from a lot of people to write it. I, I declined for many, many years. And then once I started putting it together, it made sense. And I'm, I hope it offers a little bit of inspiration to people. It's no different than a lot of other immigrant stories. But the fact that I am doing what I am today, given where I came from, is, is to me, it just proves that if you're positive and you have a sense of optimism and you work hard and you and, and uh, you know you take advantage of what the United States offers to you and you take risk 
you know, the sky's the limit. So be upbeat and be positive. And that's what the book essentially is about. I love it. I love it. Rings very true. Uh, And I feel like it's the perfect message on this Monday. Michael Dowling, be well. uh, President and CEO at Northwell Health on the phone from New Hyde Park, New York. His book, After the Roof Caved In, An Immigrant's Journey from Ireland to America. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. We know this, named CEO last September. Technically, though, her first day on the job, Tim. We're talking about Jane Frazier. She's now in the CEO seat, running the third largest U.S. bank. We're talking about Citibank and getting right to work. So let's get into it with Jenny Serene. She's reporting about it for Bloomberg Businessweek, finance reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in New York City, joining us along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor, Jill Weber. Jill, I feel like there's so much going on when it comes to the big Wall Street banks, but this is a big deal having a woman atop a major Wall Street firm. Big time, and, and it's been, we've been talking about this story for, for years, maybe mm-hmm. even decades, about <laughs> which bank it's gonna happen at, who's the woman who's gonna crack the ceiling, and then we found out, you know, obviously a couple months ago that it was gonna be Jane uh, Fraser at, at City, and I, I'm really curious, Jenny, like, we knew a lot of things that she was going to um, uh, face and have to deal with, and I want to talk about that, but then also just want to talk about day one because she's come out and actually really already sort of caught attention. And, and what was the number one thing she came out of the gate with? Yeah, her very first announcement on her first day as CEO was that the bank is going to achieve net zero emissions um, by 2050. And so she, she announced that to employees and, and to the broader public today. And I think it's really her trying to put her stamp on this issue and, and really say this is going to be what matters to me and, and what matters to City. What are, what are her other priorities right now? I mean, she's got to be hitting the ground running today. What's on her to-do list? Yeah, well, so I think she started the day actually with kind of a virtual town hall, which, um, you know, that's part of what's so weird about this time is it feels almost anticlimactic to have, you know, the first female CEO of a major U.S. bank and she's taking over and it's all being done virtually. But you know, I think more broadly, she's got a lot on her plate in terms of the regulatory homework that the OCC and the Fed assigned them last year. She's got to overhaul all of their internal technology and controls. Um, that's work that's going to take years, cost a lot of money, and, and require them to, you know, hire thousands of people for this effort. So I think that's really the big thing on her plate right now. Well, and it's interesting, and you write this in your reporting, that she has said that Citigroup strategy doesn't need a massive overhaul. Um, and she's just going to kind of do it as she goes along. So do you buy that? You know, I think it's, I think what she wants is really um, to kind of stick with their knitting in terms of the things that they're really good at. And um, because, you know, they've got a lot on their plate in terms of this regulatory work, they've got to find other ways to cut. Um, they've got really big, ambitious targets for getting their returns up to what J.P. Morgan and Bank of America look like. So, yeah, she's going to be making some changes, but I think what she's been trying to communicate is that it's not going to look vastly different. There just need, but might be some tweaking on the on the margins. There's also um, this this blooper, as I've been uh, referring to it, Jenny, which was the, the money that got wired from city to creditors, and then they managed to get some of it clawed back, clawed back but not others. They lost a, a court case recently about this. Um, no doubt uh, underway, the appeal is underway, but, but how much of that is um, an impediment to sort of her, her first, um, uh, you know, year on the job? Yeah, I mean, I think that's just a really embarrassing example of the types of work that they have to get done in order to satisfy their regulators. So I think, 
you know, regulators have been stepping around and, and, you know, really disappointed with the bank for a long time now. And this Revlon issue where they accidentally sent out nearly a billion dollars just kind of shows exactly what these regulators were talking about and exactly what they want Citigroup to fix. So I think it's kind of emblematic of really deeper issues that City has to fix and will have to hire lots of people and, you know, change lots of executives around probably and, and, and really dig in and, and fix this up. Um, and she says and, that and she's committed to doing that. Um, so when is, where, where is um, she going to look for strategic growth, Jenny? Like where, where's the, the Jane Frazier uh, future? What, what is that going to look like? So one of the other big things she's done in recent weeks was she actually collapsed their private banking arm and their wealth management arm. And so that is now City Global Wealth. And I think they're really hoping that this is where they can find growth. You know, you don't really think of City as a wealth shop. They um, got out of that business during the crisis and really haven't made any big forays. And then you see folks like Morgan Stanley kind of, you know, really making lots of money there. So I think they're trying to kind of um, take a little tab out of, of a, a bank like Morgan Stanley's book, and, and we'll see if they're successful. Um, but she's also she's got a lot of distractions when it comes to really growing that business. So it'll it'll be interesting to watch. Hey Jenny, before you go, we got to ask you about your other story. Something that's definitely caught our attention. Uh, your story kicks off with Walmart just took a step closer to being J.P. Morgan Chase's biggest nightmare. There's so much going on with the big banks. I feel like uh, right now, what do we need to know? Just got about 45 seconds here. Yeah, Walmart, you know, they just um, in January announced that they're going to start this outside financial technology startup and really have been tight-lipped since then about what that's going to look like. Um, and then this weekend we found out that they've hired two senior guys from Goldman to come in and run it. So definitely one to watch and, and it will be really interesting to see what they do with it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, good stuff. Thank you so much. Jenny Serain, finance reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in New York City. Uh, check out all of her reporting. And of course, our thanks to Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week on the remote access from Brooklyn. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg Radio. So 10 years ago, one of our most beloved franchises on Bloomberg TV kicked off, initially known as Bloomberg West, later as Bloomberg Technology, steered and shepherded by Bloomberg's Emily Chang. And a lot has happened in the past decade. We've seen early trends that took off, some things that didn't so much. So we thought we'd take a a look back at the past decade, Tim. Well, joining us now is Emily Chang. She's the host of Bloomberg Technology on Bloomberg Television. Joining us on the phone from San Francisco, Emily, 10 years. Wow. 10 years. I have spent the last week, two weeks, laughing and crying as I've been going through (laughs) all the old footage. And Carol, I'm so happy to be here with you because I had never anchored before when I came to Bloomberg (laughs) and you showed me the ropes and I still use the terminal command. You showed me on that very first day. So thank you. Well, congratulations because I've always loved listening to your interviews and your insight and you just took us to places you know, uh, of trends that we now all take for granted today and also uncovered things that you were, you know, you would be skeptical about because you're like, well, wait a minute, is this really going to play out? So what what really stands out for you uh, in terms of the past oh, 10 years? My goodness, it is so hard to boil it down. When the show launched, it was February 28, 2011. Um, Steve Jobs was still alive. Mm. He died later that year. Tim Cook became CEO. And since then, the iPhone has leaped. Ten generations, that's just one thing. Um, Amazon is probably the biggest value creation story of the last decade with the e-commerce business exploding, the cloud exploding, Alexa, 
now being part of the furniture. Also, there's a lot of things that didn't work out. Like, you know, we went back, we saw some old footage of me wearing Google Glass. That never really became a thing. Snap spectacles. Um, and, of course, there's Tesla, which I think has taken uh, a lot of people by surprise and, and, and a good surprise if you're thinking about what it means for the planet. I just have to say, for those who are watching uh, our show right now on YouTube, they got to see you put on those uh, those uh, spectacles. They looked kind of cute, kiddo. I'm just going to say. <laughs> yeah, you know, I thought they were, like, not bad. It's pretty stylish. It's a shame they didn't work out. But, you know, and I'm not counting AR or virtual reality <sighs> glasses out. I think maybe they just came a little too soon and... Uh, somebody else may figure out the right form factor in the next decade. Mm. So, Emily, I'm going to ask you to put on your, your you know, predictor hat and, and really think about, based on what you're thinking about right now, the people you're talking to right now, what is it that, that we're talking about when we're sitting together in 10 years, 10 years from now? So it's almost impossible to predict how much technology will change in the next decade, except to know that it will change faster than we think. One thing is for sure, AI will be a much bigger part of the conversation. We can't know for sure how it'll change our lives or make our lives different, but we can be sure that our lives will be very different as a result. Machine learning, all of these companies, um, every company is going to be incorporating these technologies into their products. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see if, you know, the four or five major tech companies um, still exist as they are today. We're, they're all facing um, antitrust scrutiny, um, not just from the U.S. government, but governments around the world. Do Apple, Facebook, Amazon, Google, Microsoft all exist in 10 years as, as they do today? How are they different? Um, how much are acquisitions and big deals part of the conversation? And, and who are the new innovators? I mean, I'm watching... Mm. Um, TikTok and Nextdoor, I actually interviewed Reed Hoffman. You're going to see a, a clip of that interview uh, on the show later today. Um, the co-founder of LinkedIn, he, think, he thinks we're going to have an explosion of social platforms, many social platforms, mm. not just one obvious go-to. Hey, I got to ask you, because you're also the author of Rotopia, uh, Breaking Up the Boys Club of Silicon Valley, and you really took a deep dive into why men were dominating the tech industry. And I do wonder, to have... Have things changed at all? Is there more diversity? It's something we've talked about a lot in the past year because of the pandemic, the lack of diversity uh, in Silicon Valley. Is it changing? Carol, it is happening. The conversation mm. is happening, but the numbers are not changing fast enough. I mean, just looking at a recent statistic that we're going to bring up on the show today, women make up about 12% of decision makers at venture capital firms. So these are the people who are deciding where the money goes, what gets a chance to be the next Google or Facebook or Apple. Women founded startups are only getting about 11% of the funding. I mean, we're half the population. Come on. I know. I know. Right? Exactly. But I'm excited to see where we are a decade from now because there is motivation. There are people who care. There are more people fighting about this and talking about this than certainly there were a decade ago. And I believe that the most visionary people in the most visionary industry in the world right. can do this. Hey, can I can I say one more thing? In 10 years, you've had a few kids, right? <laughs> Just a few. Um, the show is my first baby, but believe it or not, I've had four children in the last decade. And it's kind of mind-blowing to think that, um, yeah, I was... You know, building a show and becoming a mom all yeah. at the same time and looking to people like you who are working moms who, you know, have figured it out. And, you know, I know it's a constant balancing act, but, um, you know, I'm 
I'm really proud, and I'm always looking for more advice. So, Carol, I'll probably call you after this to find out how you still look so good. Uh, I always love when we're together and we huddle, but I'm in awe. <laughs> you you have shown how you can do it all, and it isn't always easy, but uh, it's just great stuff, kiddo, and looking forward to the next 10 years. Emily Chang, check her out on Bloomberg Technology. That's today at 5 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Television. She has seen so much, much and always talking to the people who are at the cutting edge. She has interviewed everybody. I mean, anyone who's anybody in Silicon Valley. It's amazing. And she's really nice, too. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, we just got about 11 minutes left in today's trading session. Carol Master along with Tim Stenovic in our Interactive Brokers studio. I want to welcome uh, Dave Donabedian. He is Chief Investment Officer of CIBC Private Wealth Management. $74 billion in assets under management. With us once again on the phone from Baltimore. Dave, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing okay. Different day. Feels like a different tone this week. Uh, market volatility, you know, that's kind of the norm. We're supposed to have volatility in the markets. What does the recent trade, and in particular equity versus what we saw in the bond market, what does it say to you? Well, I think you, know, you always look to the, the Treasury market as a, a signal about what equity investors are most worried about. And so, you know, we saw this significant rise in yields really going back to the Georgia Senate election, 50, 55 basis points. And you know, what that says, I think, is that equity investors are no longer, first and foremost, worried about the pandemic and a double-dip recession. They're more worried about economic overheating, higher inflation, and higher borrowing costs. So that's a, you know, a pretty significant, uh, you know, change in what's, a, what's atop the wall of worry. And I think that the, the bond market and inflation statistics are going to get much, much, much more attention really all this year. Uh, so, compared to recent years. Well, so, so what, what is the signal that you think the bond market is, is sending? Is it sending one about inflation or is it sending one about optimism about the economy? Well, I, I think it's beginning to send some messages on inflation because, hmm. uh, you know, I, I think the, the likelihood now that we're going to see this, you know, very significant $1.9 trillion or something close to it, uh, relief package passed, um, you know, you have to, when, when you look at the impact of the COVID package that just passed at the end of December, that already by January it had, had this incredible adrenaline rush for uh, disposable income and pushing the savings rate over, over 20%. Uh, I think investors, bond and equity investors, are thinking, well, what happens if you more than double the size of those direct-to-household payments? What happens when you extend and increase the uh, supplemental unemployment benefits? What happens when you extend more interest-free money to businesses and this idea that, uh, you know, maybe, maybe we haven't quite priced in just how strong the economy is going to be. And, and I think it's, you know, that, that sort of overheating risk is going to be a sort of a, a periodic um, you know, risk that, that equity and bond investors are going to have to deal with, you know, all year long, really. We still have, though, a pretty steep unemployment rate. And we still have a lot of workers in terms of underemployment. It's still pretty steep. Right. So does that kind of keep things in check? I, I think it ultimately does. I don't think we're at the beginning of the, the next great inflation wave, you know, a, a redux of the 70s. 
I think we're a ways away from that for the reasons you mentioned. We still have a significant output gap. But you look over the next few months, and I think there are some uh, data points that investors are going to have to, to deal with and, and, and that the Fed even may eventually be, con- be concerned about. We, we know that we had three deflationary months, right, when, when COVID hit last year. They're going to lap out of the, the year-over-year comparison. So by the third quarter, most inflation indicators will probably have a, have a two-handle. Um, if you looked at the, the ISM report this morning, not just showing overall strong activity in the manufacturing sector, but you know, the prices paid component was mm-hmm. the highest it's been since 2008, and vendor deliveries are stringing way out, the longest they've been since 2004. And, and so um, you know, we know that in looking at the tips markets, that inflationary expectations have been climbing higher, but there's indications on, on Main Street, too, that uh, inflation expectations are climbing. The University of Michigan uh, sentiment survey that came out last week um, showed that this year consumers expect the highest rate of inflation in, in over seven years. So um, I think we are going to have to, uh, you know, the, the Fed has sort of branded this as transitory. Um, I think it's more significant than that. So given, given these thoughts about inflation, about the bond market, Dave, um, how are you thinking about asset allocation for your customers right now, for your clients? Yeah, I, I would say, um, you know, underweight core fixed income. Uh, you know, we, our view coming into the year was that the 10-year Treasury would, would spend most of the year between 1.5% and 2%. I still think that's right, so there's an, an upward bias uh, to yield. Um, some things we've recommended as sort of supplementary income have been floating rate debt and, and preferred securities. On the equity markets, we're roughly equal weight. It's a, it's a balance between some of those interest rate risks that I mentioned but on the other side, the fact that we're going to have a, at least a 25% increase in corporate earnings. So we think that, that equities are still attractive relative to, uh, to, to bonds. Hey, um, hey, Dave, one thing I want to ask you, and I'm, forgive me, I'm, I'm kind of thinking back to something Tim and I were just talking about. Uh, Elizabeth Warren talking about a wealth tax um, uh, and talking about it could raise something like $3 trillion over over a decade. I was talking about, too, being at Milken just a couple of years ago, and there were a lot of wealthy individuals who said, yeah, it's time for us to pay a little bit more taxes. Is that even likely? And do you think, think it's the, a good or bad idea? Um, I think the wealth tax is not a very workable idea when you look at the history of it in other countries. Very hard to collect, very hard to measure. That's why I think it won't happen. But I do think that uh, we are going to see some tax increases on corporations and upper-income individuals through more conventional means, the, the corporate tax rate, the top marginal tax bracket, maybe on, on capital gains, uh, more likely to be 2022 focused than this year. Wow. I, w- I wonder about, well, back to the portfolio construction and thinking about what your clients are saying right now, um, what is the most common question that you're, you're answering, that you're, that you're fielding? The most common question is one that nobody uh, in Washington seems to be asking, which is something like, what about the deficit? What about the national debt? And kind of why does nobody seem to care? Huh. <laughs> uh, get that question constantly from, from clients, and it's a really good question. What's your answer? The short answer to it is uh, a lot of people will care, just not now. Uh, as long as you have the, the central bank as a massive, uh, a massive buyer, of Treasury securities, as long as you have a still, you know, relatively low um, inflation rate and low interest cost, it's a it's a back burner issue right now, not a front burner issue. 
Right. And I think many would argue or counter with saying, listen, it's more important that we do everything and anything to shore up the economy, because if we let the economy sink to a point where it's going to be even tougher to get on the other side, um, that's a bigger problem, potentially. Yeah. I mean, the, the, what you hear right now in Washington is the risk is going too small on this relief package, like yeah. in the lessons from 2008. Because we talk about the deeper you fall, although we are coming out of it already, but you want to make sure you don't slip back in. All right, we've just got about three and a half minutes in the trading session. Our thanks to Dave Donabedian, uh, Chief Investment Officer at CIBC Private Wealth Management with us from Baltimore. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.